0: Growth Pod is brought to you by Genero, a leading growth agency in the Nordics. We interview marketing experts, business leaders, and entrepreneurs to uncover the stories and strategies behind profitable growth.
1: Today's guest is Björn Thungren, the founder and CEO of MEDS, which is an online pharmacy in Sweden. On the Financial Times list of Europe's fastest-growing companies between 2018 and 2021, MEDS was ranked number one in Sweden and number 72nd in Europe. Welcome to the show Björn.
0: Thank you very much and great to be here.
1: So you had a background in business development, M&A and investment. And I'd be curious to, you know, given that background, you presumably have a really good understanding of markets, you know, breaking apart business models. And so I'd be curious to know what was kind of like the insight that you saw that led you to found meds back in I think two two thousand seventeen or or two thousand eighteen.
0: Correct. Yeah, we launched in t- twenty eighteen, but we started in twenty seventeen. So, I, I really do have a three sixty degree uh, career, kind of a backwards career. I started with tech investments, and then moving on to advisory, and then operational roles for a US company, and then finally founding meds at uh, quite a late stage in, in life. I'm, I'm happy to have read in Harvard Business Review that the most successful startups are started by 45-year-olds. So uh, at least that we did right. And uh, uh, of course, I am have still a lot to learn, uh, as, as does everyone. But uh, the experience from those various sides of business was valuable in finding what to do and what to start. And Number one is a a big market, and obviously pharmacy is one of the largest retail markets around. It's in in Sweden, uh, over 5 billion euros per year, and and it keeps growing. It's been growing since the Middle Ages and grows every year, Uh, totally uncyclical. Uh, So that was number two, and not being impacted by uh, economic shifts uh, was really good. Uh, And then finally, uh, I was really looking for a consumer-oriented service as I've been very much into the B2B space before, which is uh, also great, uh, but a lot more binary. Either you land that big customer or you don't. And if you do not, then you're in trouble. Whereas, of course, uh, we like to keep 100% customers happy. But if we lose one, we can always find another. And it's um, a, a, a lot more movement it, it it generates money while we're sleeping, so so that combined with a, a real problem to solve uh, I, I think made uh, all the the bits there to build a great company. And
1: you mentioned that there are some unique features um, of the online pharmacy or like pharmacy in general in Sweden. Um, I think we talked about there's you know, it was it has something in common with North Korea the Swedish uh, pharmacy. Yes, the market. Swedish
0: market is, is uh, extreme and it's it's funny, there's a Swedish expression, lagom, which means just about right, but really nothing in Sweden is, is logon. We're always on the uh, either one side or the other and uh, with pharmacy, in 1971 uh, all pharmacies were nationalized and uh, there was only one pharmacy, a big chain called The Pharmacy and uh, uh, that remained until 2010. So Sweden was unique with North Korea in in having a government monopoly for for pharmacy. And we're actually still unique in that this chain remains and only North Korea and Sweden does have a state-run pharmacy retail chain, even though the market is uh, deregulated and that chain is not even number one uh, and has no special mission. So it's interesting to compete against the government that also in many ways, sets the terms for our, our business. So they're on, on both both sides. And there was an advantage of that background in that one government entity uh, talked to another government entity and thereby we have really good t- uh, technology uh, to, um, to to uh, sell online. We have 100% electronic prescriptions and um, uh, we also have a digital ID, and we have good re- regulation that actually allows this, which is not the case in many other countries. So Sweden is the leading country globally in terms of selling prescribed medicine online. So even though we're a very small country, small population, we have a huge market, and we also have the very best uh, prerequisites to uh, to create the business. So that's why we're still only here and, and, and not having expanded To many other markets which is the norm for a scale up and actually has been what i've done for other companies in in the past just expanding to new markets all around
1: yeah i don't think that's obvious to people but you mentioned that the the online penetration in the pharmacy industry is like 10 times higher in sweden than it is in norway for instance so there's a huge difference in terms of just consumer behavior
0: very much so. And, and that also is because uh, the government pharmacy actually launched online back in 2006. So, so they were early in, in uh, promoting the concept, uh, which means it's known. And in many other countries, it's still quite unknown. And, and when I talk to peers in other countries, they say we have to spend a lot of time and effort in educating people that this is even possible. And that's not really uh, the case here. And it's also, it's not controversial in some markets. Uh, it's seen as a threat by the existing physical pharmacies and they lobby against it. Whereas here, everyone's doing it and even the government's doing it. So it's not controversial uh, at all. And everyone see the value it brings because uh, we have very few pharmacies in Sweden. We have half the EU average, which is also a result of the monopoly. Uh, they only placed pharmacies here, there, there uh, on, on like a strategic level rather than actual according to demand. So we do feel a very important gap in, in bridging that here.
1: So let's talk a little bit about like the early days of meds. Um, it sounds like you had a very good kind of, the, the macro view made a lot of sense, right? There's all there's a there good prerequisite for starting a business in this non-cyclical, uh, you know, ever-growing market and in Sweden is the right country to do that. But, you know, presumably you, you guys had competitors, including <laughs> the government, which is a... I can imagine a difficult competitor to have. Um, so what was the strategy in the beginning in, in what I would assume to be a very price-driven market? is that What was the strategy in terms of customer acquisition and, and differentiation for you guys?
0: Yeah, That has actually been one of our greatest challenges. And we, we sat a lot with different marketing agencies and they tried to really find what's the unique selling point. And uh, we were quite blunt with that there isn't one and, and just accept it. It's a huge market. Everyone sells the same products, especially when it comes to prescribed medicine, we, we don't even control the inventory. It's decided by the doctors. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, so what we do is we create a really good experience every time, and that's unique selling point. If you, uh, are, are happy as a customer, you will, you will return. So we. We do our best to really live up to what we promised, and and try to fix when things go wrong. But that said, we do also compete with a higher service level. So we have customer service seven days a week, and we deliver faster than others. And we have our warehouse just outside the city of, of Stockholm, whereas others are hours uh, away. And fifty percent of the market is in this region, so we can deliver faster. And then we work a lot also with the customer experience, making it as fast and smooth as possible. And of course, we do try also to stick out in in terms of what products we we sell. Um, But 90% plus is is the same everywhere. And so um, then I guess the only way you can really stick out is to be the by far cheapest. And that's a position we haven't uh, chosen. Um, I, I worked a lot in telecoms before and I see in most markets there are three or four mobile operators and it's similar uh, dynamics actually. They do tend to take a position of the market. One is the former government incumbent and one is sort of enterprise and one is the consumer uh, and, and then there's typically a value player and that's that's us. We, we deliver a lot of value. We have good prices but we're not always number one uh, but uh, we're all already a lot more affordable than the stores. There's a huge price difference between stores and online, which doesn't exist in any other market. So it's it's quite unique for pharmacy, at least in, in Sweden. Uh, so there is a great advantage to shopping here. And then maybe you can get uh, 1% or 2% even cheaper if you hunt around for each and every product, and, and that's fine. We don't have to take 100% of the market. I think
1: uh, I could just imagine the marketing agency kind of getting heads exploding when when they're trying to figure out the differentiation. And, and,
0: <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> like was almost nightmare. like an interrogation. Like, tell me the USP. <laughs> like, we, we don't have it. <laughs>
1: but it sounds like you had a really clear strategy and a, kind of like a playbook out of the Amazon you know, way of approaching customer obsession. And, and essentially you said, it doesn't matter if the price is still going to be so much cheaper to shop online versus in-store that customers, a large percent of customers are not going to try to find exactly the cheapest like pain uh, killers whatever they're going to go for the meds which is because of the they they know they get the best customer service so that's ca-
0: that's really what we're aiming for and, and and that they can find also everything they're looking for i think that's equally important that it's not a theoretical uh, product inventory we have 20,000 plus products uh, you know 30,000 plus if you include the prescribed medicine. Uh, but if only uh, a handful of those are actually in store and then you have to wait, then you go somewhere else. So we work a lot with actually getting things in and, and making sure they're never out of stock and, and always available. That's the problem, especially when it comes to our products that you typically need in a hurry, more important than if you can save uh, you know, 10 cents.
1: That makes sense. So in addition to obvious things like inventory, what have you guys been doing? Uh, what kind of investments have you been making in customer experience to make sure that you are, you know, the customers are really happy every single time and they keep coming back? Because obviously it's, it sounds like a, a really effective strategy, growth strategy, but it's I, I would guess it's not <laughs> very simple to execute. So, so what have you guys kind of been doing and, and how have you gone about finding customer needs and meeting them and perhaps before your competitors have been able to?
0: Yeah, it is a challenge, especially when the company grows as fast as we have done. So 170% on average during a couple of years. Um, And we could have grown actually a lot faster, but then we would have also taken in a lot of unhappy customers. And that's that's not very smart because they don't come back. So you just spend a lot of money on acquisition and and then they go somewhere else and, and are disappointed. So giving... Investing ahead of time has been very important to us in all aspects, uh, in terms of capacity in the warehouse, in, um, in a number of pharmacists, number of customer service staff uh, and IT that um, you hear a lot, I think, especially in the uh, D2C space, the, the brands, when they launch something, oh, the, the website breaks down and then they're happy because the demand was so great for us that's that's not what we're looking for we need the website to always work and and we do invest a lot we develop all all IT systems in house And uh, my co-founder uh, Adam uh Shawaf is the, the CTO and um so we we do take a lot of pride in in making sure it works it's boring but it's very very important
1: just a quick side note um because it's kind of so so fresh are you using AI in any ways already to improve the customer experience in any way? Anything that you're kind of excited about? Any use cases in general for AI that you're looking at?
0: We, we have some built in, but we can do a lot more. And that that's something we, we talk a lot about internally. How do we get all this promise to actually get traction in, 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 the, um, in the business uh, because there's always an excuse why you don't use it. Oh, it's not good enough yet for my particular task. And of course, if you're a really good designer, then AI will not do exactly what you want all the time. Uh, and, and vice versa, if you're a content writer or you're a buyer or, or whatever. But we have to find a level where it's good enough and actually start using it and accept that sometimes it will not, Go go great, and and then we fix it. Uh, but uh, we have only like touched on the surface there, and and I think also some may, in general, not just here, in general, be concerned. Oh, what happens to my job with AI? Will it take my job? But but our our philosophy is that uh, it, it might if you don't embrace AI, because then we'll have to hire someone that that knows AI. But if you do it, then you're going to be irreplaceable, plus you're going to be supercharged. You're going to be able to do 10 times as much in the same time without being stressed. So that's how we have to see this. And and there's so much we can do in the customer experience uh, and um, our board member, David Usimo Klarna, he has a lot of experience from China, for example, where he says, you don't search for the product, the product searches for, for you. Uh, and with the breadth of products we have and and um, uh, it's it's hard for a consumer to find out what is actually right for me and even for me i've been in the company now five plus years and when i walk around in a warehouse i find a lot of products that i didn't know existed so how can we help the consumer find those products online Uh, and uh, uh, yeah in in every way in the customer service uh, and uh, you, you there's there's good enough solutions for pretty much everything uh, now so it's no longer a theoretic concept it's it's out there so the answer is we we've just started but uh, a year from now i think you you hopefully will see uh, a lot of changes in how we approach the customers and how we help our suppliers as well so it goes the whole way
1: yeah i, I can think i can imagine that there must be such a huge opportunity in helping customers discover more products that they can use cuz yeah I don't know, there must be millions out there. Um, going back to to customers and customer acquisition, you have about something around eight hundred thousand active customers right now. And you're like you said, you're only in Sweden, so quick math, that should be around eight percent of the total population, which is pretty crazy for a, a new company. Um, can you talk a little bit about the acquisition strategies that you have used to acquire those customers? And maybe if those are changing, and if so, how, as you kind of continue to increase, um, to scale the company?
0: Yeah, it, it's mind boggling, actually, that it's that many. And, and of course, it's because we're an industry that touches everyone. So if you just look at the prescribed medicine, two thirds of the population have at least one prescription per year. And, and for women, that's even higher, it's like 80%. And then we sell a lot more as well. So some people say, "Oh, I don't, I don't go to a pharmacy." Uh, but, like, do you brush your teeth? Do you wash your hair? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, of course, you do. Uh, do you need some skincare? Yeah, I do. Do you eat some vitamins? Yeah, I do. So, yeah, you, you do shop at at pharmacies. Typically, it's um, uh, the women uh, of of the household that do the shopping, and you know the bandages just magically appear uh, at home. Uh, so, I think that's a key question to figure out. Uh, who's actually making the buying decision. And, and so if you look at our audience, it's heavily tilted to females, uh, 70, 80%. And uh, quite young, it's like 25 to 55 is, is the core, even though we have customers that are over 100. Um, but in general, everyone's our customers, So we have to figure out who's most likely to, to switch because it's still an early adopter game. Uh, and who's most profi- profitable as well. So we just don't find the bargain hunters. Uh, so our strategy has been from the start to to build a brand. Uh, five out of ten Swedes now recognize males, which is even more mind-boggling, I guess. Um, and we invested a lot in, in brand uh, campaigns in the early days. We we retained Monselmenov, the Eurovision Song Contest winner, and he did a music video, which was really... Uh, um, recognized because he was actually naked on a horse uh, so that made headlines uh, (laughs) uh, especially since it was a pharmacy that did it pharmacies are typically very generic green and boring and all of a sudden we had this pop star on a horse uh, without clothes so so, um, we, we decided to stick out because we are very serious in everything we do in the operations. Uh, And that's that, I think, means we don't have to be serious in every part of the way in how we communicate. So that was important in the first few years, getting the brand out there, getting it well-known and um, understood that this is a serious player. This is one of of a few. There's actually not that many big pharmacy players, but uh, they're strong. So we compete with the government, we compete with Ikea, which is the largest uh, and grocery chain here, extremely well-known brands. So we have to build our brand as well. Um, and having done that, we, we gradually toned that down and now it's all about getting as many to actually test the service. It's not good enough to just know about mass, we want you to test it and hopefully be happy and come back. And uh, so that's a process, I think, that will continue for some time. And, and eventually we can then start growing the, the brand investments again and, and just reinforcing what you already know. You had a good experience. Don't forget it, basically. So that's the, the, the tactic in, in short. Uh, uh, but of course, we try to maximize that we're online, that we know so much about our customers and figure out which are our most profitable customers and how can we keep those customers and attract more of those customers and not the ones that we don't see really uh, benefit us because it's a tight margin industry and we cannot serve everyone every time.
1: That's really interesting. Like It, it sounds like you made brand investments quite early on, which is, I think, for, for most kind of startups, the, the opposite is they first focus really heavily on tactical, like performance marketing, getting users, customers, whatever. And then at the end or later on, they they start adding brand investments. But um, it sounds like doing brand early on was really key in order for you, for you guys to, to to get explain or show to people that this is something new and different.
0: Yeah, I think it depends on what industry you're in. So if you're in an industry that's very new and you're actually building the market as you're scaling up your service or product, then it doesn't really make sense to just invest in a brand because what is that? that? That's nothing. But we're entering a huge, very old incumbent industry and we need to really box our way in. So that's what we, we decided we have to make this uh, investment. Um, but in general, I think it's smarter to really make sure you have a solid product and, and product market fit and then start investing. You know, that's, that's a more traditional approach for, uh, for sure.
1: And, and you mentioned that you guys are now very f- heavily focusing on getting those the right customers because the margins are so tight um, can you talk about maybe are there any practical ways of, of first like identifying that and then actually trying to go after those specific type of customers I feel like that's something a lot of companies struggle with is even if they know that there's a specific segment that they should be targeting they just you know is it about channels or is it about messaging or, or, or are there other tactics that you can use to find those specific? address or reach that specific segment that you want?
0: Yeah, it's it's all about um, making sure what part of the data set you analyze because we have so much data. You can easily get lost, I think. Um, but if we, we look at, we need high average order values. That's the key. Like It doesn't matter if you have 100% margins on a low average order value in e It's not going to work. So we need to find the, the people that spend a lot uh, and preferably the ones that also spend in the categories that have higher margins. And after a while, you learn that, oh, it's it's probably, uh, it's not so much tied to geography, but it's rather uh, age, gender, and and other things uh, that, that define if you are a customer that uh, really adds value to, to us, that are loyal and... Um, don't always shop around for each and every campaign we can still give campaigns and to activate the customer base and that's really what we're looking probably the most at now is is improving our crm game we we made a key recruits in that area and having people shop more often uh, of what we know are loyal and and profitable customers so on average you should shop four times a year in this industry and our customers still on average shop uh, less than that but if we can focus on the customers that have shopped at least twice then we see they do tend to stay a long time and, and they have shown a lot of potential of um, increasing and thereby each time they increase average order value because they give more and more of their share of purchase to to us versus um, other pharmacies but also uh, grocery stores whatever we can find similar products uh, so so that's the key, really.
1: Yeah, you really got to know your numbers in a in a kind of tight margin industry like that. It...
0: Yeah, and it's taken a lot of time, I think, to get um, the right amount of data, but also learn really the patterns. And uh, we keep rediscovering things that, you know, we thought was true is not really true and, and adapting. So it's uh, it's never ending.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. Um, so in 2020, we had obviously the the COVID pandemic and, and lockdowns, and and that must have been well. You know, what what was that like for for you as an online pharmacy? It uh, had kind of I mean, you were at the intersection of both this massive shift to online that happened in a very short period of time, uh, and also obviously everything related to pharmacy, healthcare, prescriptions, um, and just over the counter, you know, medicines and supplements and so forth. So. What was that like, those uh, 2020, 2021, and, and 2022?
0: Yeah, that was interesting days for, for sure. And especially for us, we were already growing so fast. So uh, it's not necessarily, as many think, only a blessing. It was, it was in, in a way, a blessing, especially long-term, but also a lot of problem. And uh, we, we had more to deal with in terms of demand uh, that we could handle. And then all of a sudden, that tripled overnight uh and then maybe uh, there was this hoarding and then for for a while people had what they had needed and they stopped shopping and so it was constant stop start stop start and uh replenishing the warehouse getting the people in at one point we interviewed i think 100 people and or hired even in a matter of weeks uh yeah. Getting them to understand what to do, uh, it was very costly and, and uh, short term, we lost a lot of money on, on COVID and, and we also lost a lot of money on COVID related products because normally we get products within 24 hours. It's by law here. So we don't have a lot of inventory, not at least for you know months ahead, but all of a sudden we needed to make big buys and also direct buys from Turkey, from China, very odd calls. <laughs> And really the, the private uh, players here ensured uh, that Sweden had protection. It was us that did it uh, with great financial risk. Uh, it was not the government or even the government pharmacy. We we, we took a lot of risk and, and um, uh, it was just a completely different business than than the year before and, and today. So uh, the good side is that we we um, came on the radar screen also for older people and everyone accepted and understood the value online place in this industry uh, including at government and and um, department level we we got access to a lot of people that didn't want to talk to us earlier and and uh, they were basically how can we uh, how can you help us how can we help you and we're in it together so was a very very interesting period and we were right in the middle of the of the store for for good and for bad
1: yeah and and you know i think you've been sharing some data that this um the switch to online there's been kind of a reversion in most categories but not in in pharmacy because it makes so much sense to shop online because of selection and prices like no one no one goes to the farm no one looks forward to the pharmacy trip to walk around the aisles and, and and do the shopping so um That COVID also exposed a lot of risks, geopolitical supply chain risks. So is that something that you're paying attention to uh, inside, you know, at meds? And if so, how are you preparing or or trying to mitigate those risks?
0: Yeah, it actually went surprisingly well uh, because... um, the medicine industry is always prioritized in, in the value chains. And as far as I know, there weren't any major uh, outages of, of medicine. There were there were some, but not for life-threatening things. I, I think for, for a while, some painkillers uh, were out of stock, for example. But in general, it worked really well. And uh, it's small packages. You can fly them and, and you can prioritize them. Uh, what I think is more of a, Longer term issue is that medicines run out even today and, and more than, more than uh, has always been the case, but it's, it's continuing and it's a global problem. And the, the uh, pharmaceutical industry uh, have very tight value chains. And in, in the 90s, a lot of medicine was produced in Europe. Now it's all produced in China and India. And usually at a single factory in in some cases. So if there's a fire there, then we're in trouble. (laughs) So And and there's no storages along the way. So um, that's something I think for the politicians to think about. How can we create redundancy in this system and not be uh, geopolitically dependent on China, for example, uh, but also on, on a more micro level uh, dependent on one single manufacturer Uh, and, and it's been so much focused on saving money. And that's great. I I pay taxes too, and I appreciate that. But uh, in, in the end, uh, you can be smarter uh, and and then, then then you you think and and actually create a lot of problems by uh, being that tight. Um, So that's something we, we can't really control, but we can uh, communicate and, and uh, make everyone aware of this issue. Typically, a general consumer blames the pharmacy because they go to the pharmacy, the pharmacy doesn't have the medicine, and it must be the pharmacy's fault. But it's, it's, uh, it, it really isn't. There's no interest for us in not having uh, things on stock. They're quite the opposite. So it's only because we cannot source it. And, and that's in, in other parts of the value chains to to uh, figure out.
1: Yeah, I think it opened the eyes of a lot of people to the fact that a lot of critical surprise material is produced in a single place, as you mentioned in some cases. And that's probably not a very good idea. Um, I want to go back to something you mentioned with, about growth. So you decided to stay in Sweden because it's a very huge market. It's been growing as a middle age, just like you said. So there's no reason to go abroad. But um, you also read in a recent article, we talked about, you know, right now you're not focused on growth. There's no carrot, if you will, for, for growth. So I'd be interested to, to just hear about kind of your philosophy and, and how are you thinking about it? Like, when does it make sense to grow? Uh, when does it make sense to go into a new market? Like, how do, you, how do you weigh these decisions in your head as someone who is focused on profitability and building a sustainable business, I would assume, but also someone who has raised capital, right, um, debt and equity? From investors who presumably want to see growth. So how how are you balancing and thinking about the growth question?
0: Yeah, there's um, a value to growth for us in that we need to become big enough to be relevant to suppliers and create a brand, etc. But it's not relevant to infinity if it doesn't also create value for investors. And I'm one of our investors too, so I want to see value. And uh, if you look at some really, in my mind, successful companies that are listed and that create great results, but they their store, share price goes down and uh, already from a, quite a low level uh, in a market like that, we don't really see why should we invest in, in growing if it's not appreciated. And uh, uh, it, there's a time for everything. Long-term, growing is the only way to create value. Um, but right now, I think, we reached a level where we don't have to grow for the sake of it and then we can focus rather on making sure we have a, a very solid unit economics base. And, and then once the world becomes a little bit of a happier place than it is today, uh, we can always resume growth and we do grow still. It's not just 170% per year uh, because the market keeps growing and the switch from uh, physical to online is, is uh, continuing. Uh, so, so it's uh, it's for, up to us really to control where we want to go and and where we create the most value for investors. Uh, so that's that's how we 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 think.
1: Yeah, and, and you are uh, at least last year, and I, I, I'm presuming this year as well. You are growing faster than the market, so it's by no means.
0: Yeah, we did thirty percent last year, and I think the market was was ten. So, and some media said, "Oh, they're uh, they're." Um, collapsing, or whatever. But I don't think 30% is is really that three times the market is that bad, actually. So
1: <laughs> no, A lot of companies would be very happy with that. <laughs> right. Um, but, but yeah, you raised, I think, over 50 million in both debt and equity uh, from various investors. So I'd be interested to hear, are there any lessons you've learned about uh, now being on the other side? You started on the, you started on one side of the table, then I was yeah. an entrepreneur at the other side. Is there anything you've learned about the process and maybe specifically, do you have any advice for e-commerce founders, entrepreneurs who are looking to raise either debt or equity in in, in this kind of current economic environment?
0: Yeah, I talk with some of my peers that also have raised a lot of money and, and we agree it's always been hard. So in media, it was like, oh, it was so easy, like taking candy from kids and now it's hard, but it's always been hard. And should be hard. So uh, number one is embrace the pain. It's it's going to be hard. And uh, uh, that's uh, that's just reality. Uh, we don't have to raise money. Um, it can also grow slower. And and if you think raising money is the worst thing ever, either find someone else to do it. Not externally. You need to do it internally and focus on something else or build a smaller company because then you, you won't have to raise money. So... That's number one. Is is really it's gonna be hard. And if you're gonna build something really big in a big industry, it, it probably will take several rounds. And um, then, then once you made that decision, is to find w- the the pool where you get the fish. And not, don't don't fish in the wrong pond. Uh, and for us, uh, VCs, traditional VCs, has not been the right uh, pond, for example. And I know that as a former VC myself. Uh, vcs want to see 10 20x value creation in a short amount of time at huge risk uh, and that's typically done by expanding internationally really early uh, too early in most cases but uh you need to really show that traction in many different markets probably the big markets and um uh, that wasn't really what we were building for and aiming for. So we, we have not um, focused on that type of of, uh, investor. We we rather started out with other tech entrepreneurs. And and that's a great thing about Stockholm in, in many cases, in many countries now, but we have a lot of successful entrepreneurs that have created huge wealth. And sometimes they have more money than the VCs even. That wasn't the case back in 2001, when I started out as a VC, and we were the only show in town. Um, so there is money there. And they do also understand they have a longer view. They don't have a set. Um, oh, this needs to do this in three years. And then I need to exit in four. Uh, as long as I think we follow a plan. And um, they're, they're happy to to stay along for the ride. So family office, tech entrepreneurs, that has worked really well for us. Um, But to a point, then after a while, you need to sort of switch. Uh, It doesn't um, uh, work if you need to raise really large sums. And if you want to make acquisitions and to new markets, then you need to start talking to other types of investors. Uh, And for us, we we, we really saw the public market being a good place to be in that sense. Um, When public markets were working, I, I don't really see them working now in terms of actually... Uh, having a lot of liquidity and providing um, increased values compared to the, the private market. Um, so constantly think two years ahead, where are you are going to be? What type of investor do you need for that journey? And it's going to take at least six months to, to land around. And you should have at least you know, a year and a half or runway. Uh, so you're not, you're not constantly out in the last minute. Uh, start early. That's also very good for your personal health.
1: I can only imagine. (laughs) I think that's really good practical uh, advice there. Um, It's been a pretty wild journey last your last five year five years at uh, five six years at meds. Is there anything that stands out in terms of particularly important lessons about entrepreneurship and company building that you've learned during those five years?
0: Um a hard question. Uh, I, I I wish I learned more. I guess, but um, it's just keep learning. It, it, once you, when, when you think you know something, in in a short amount of time, you're gonna find out that it's not no longer true. So, and just keep adapting. That's that's the number one. Uh, and then also find not necessarily the the people you need three years from now, but the people you need now. So. Um, you have to find someone that can really help you uh, at your stage. Because if you can get someone someone really, really senior, typically they haven't really been into the details for a long while. And uh, all of a sudden they need to hire a team to do what you really wanted help with in the first place. And and you could probably have hired those people instead. So um, uh, in the end, it's all about the team and uh, making sure everyone knows what they should focus on and they can also uh, you can you can work a lot but if you run in the right direction you're not getting anywhere so it doesn't matter how fast you run Uh, so getting the right team and uh, making sure that they are very uh, focused and incentivized on on what you want to do and that helps when you're on a mission like us to really create a challenger in a big industry and uh, it's easy to understand and we see every day the value we create, customers that write to us or call us and, and say thank you because we helped them out in a tough situation. Uh, that that helps in, in motivating people. It's not just another fintech. Um, nothing, I guess, fintechs, but uh, I, I believe it's kind of harder for that type of company maybe to to find a purpose.
1: Björn, it's been a, a real pleasure uh, to talk to you and hear more about uh, about meds. If people want to, you have a lot of good kind of thought leadership about the industry in general and and stuff like that. Um, What's the best way if people want to follow you? Is it LinkedIn?
0: Yeah, LinkedIn is is great. Uh, I think that's a magic tool. Uh, I've been in sales in the past um, and pre-LinkedIn and it was uh, a nightmare to figure out who am I going to talk to and how do I reach that person? So. Uh yeah, please uh, connect there and and uh, if I can help in any way. I, I try to take time uh, and um, I'd love to.
1: Like I said, thank you so much for coming on. Um we're gonna put the, the your personal LinkedIn um URL in in the show notes if people want to check it out. Um yeah, thank you so much. and have a great rest Thanks of the day. Thanks a lot, Josh. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. You can find all episodes of The Growth Pod on Spotify, YouTube and Apple Podcasts.